uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to be mainly in verses 1 through 9, but also uh, in 10 and 11. I'll read that in just a second. Real quickly, I just want to give you a heads up as far as where we're at. Uh, we're in a series titled Church, quite simply. Uh, just trying to do some scripturally expository uh, messages from some key passages. And um, want them to keep them somewhat simple. I know that Greg mentioned that they're meaty. Meaty doesn't mean that they're always complicated. Uh, obviously, a lot of meaty things can be uh, simple. Um, but sometimes things are meaty because they're kind of new to us again or maybe new to us for the first time. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that going into this uh, today and hopefully just hope that this will stir our hearts to be the church. Uh, something we talked about last week in our, uh, uh, in our sermon. So um, with that said, we're in a larger season that this sermon series church is in. Not only we're we doing these sermons, but we're also doing, as Greg mentioned earlier, doctrine and devotion. Uh, these are teaching sets that last about 90 minutes. I know it's a lot to ask you to come back and uh, listen to a teaching for 90 minutes this afternoon, but I promise uh, it will enrich you and it will, uh, you'll go away uh, having known better what the Church of Jesus is if there's any question in your mind about that. Um, we yearn and desire to teach you all that the scriptures have to say in the amount of time that we have. Uh, and so even if you didn't sign up for this afternoon, uh, you can just show up this afternoon at four o'clock and you will be welcomed here, okay? Four o'clock this afternoon in this room. I do wanna correct something that Greg said. We do not have doctrine and devotion tomorrow night. If you show up tomorrow night, nobody will be here. Um, so just letting you know that our next one, and this is, it's just a repeat of what we're doing today. If they're identical teachings, uh, the next offering will be Thursday night at six 30. Okay. And so you can either sign up for that, give us some idea as far as what numbers we need to be prepared for, or you can just show up. I wish you would sign up because it lets us know how many sheets we need to pass out, but you can go ahead and show up and I'm cool with that too. Six 30 on Thursday night or four o'clock this afternoon. Um, okay, with that said, let's go ahead and get into the text. John chapter 15, um, starting in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking uh, to his disciples. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce fruit more fruit. You are already clean because of the word, the gospel that I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and I will do it for you. My father is glorified by this and that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Last week, we talked about the question, what is a church? And I won't go over all of it. I'll just say the, the simple version is we talked about just from the word ekklesia in the Greek, we can surmise that the church is God's chosen or called out ones, just people uh, that are gathered. They gather. Um, in fact, the word for ekklesia in the more civil, uh, civic world, was used to describe an assembly or a gathering. We talked a little bit about that. 
that makes really the gathering just super important and super unique. And we talked about its uniqueness and how we sometimes get off track as far as what we're going to shoot for in it being unique. We talked a little bit about relevance. Uh, We talked a little bit maybe about excellence, things that we can strive for. Not bad things, but not ultimate things. And also, by the way, not things you can do the best thing ever at and compete with the world. Disney will out-excellent me every day, right? I mean, everything, everything in our world can compete when it's at its best with things that really the church has no business competing at. Doesn't mean that you try to not be excellent or try to be as irrelevant as possible and I start speaking in another language merely just because I can and it sounds fun. It means that that's just not our focus, but what we do have that nobody else has, where we can win every single time. If we are gathering as the people of Jesus in this place on a weekly basis, every week is a pregnant potential for transcendence to overwhelm someone who has never seen or experienced the transcendence of a people who worship and spend time communing with the living God. There's something, we are spiritual people, and there's something very unique when a truly spiritual people, not religious people, spiritual people, emphasis on the spirit side, that we are people of the Holy Spirit. And as spiritual people, every time we gather, every time we need, is pregnant with potential for heaven and earth to meet in some way. Some weeks more so than others. So, What we mean by a week where people can come in to a worship gathering and experience something unique they won't get anywhere else, the transcendence that is offered by the people of Jesus, having been in the presence of Jesus, now bringing his presence multiplied into this place, and then seeing a little of heaven and earth intermixing, that's interesting. That's unique. That's not producible in any other way, in the way that God does. So what exactly makes a worship service on a Sunday morning with a bunch of Christians who may or may not have had a very Christ-like week? What makes that place sacred and pregnant with the potentiality of, of transcendence? The presence of God being overwhelming. God is here. But God is here multiplied when the people of a God walk through the door having been in God's presence all week. While it's something of an earthly and imperfect way of describing it, I think 2 Corinthians 14 and 15 do their best to get at this idea as to how transcendence might be so. The Apostle Paul, one of the early leaders in the church, said it this way, Thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession, And through us, through us, spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. It's an interesting metaphor. The aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ. We are the fragrance of Christ. He's talking about the believers, those who gather In local churches, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are both being saved and among those who are perishing. All people. I'm struck by two things from Paul's description. He's trying to describe what the presence of Christ going with the presence of God's people feels or should feel like. It should feel like a smell. And so he uses smell as his... Metaphor, And it does, for his purposes, convey something of a transcendence. It's hard to define. It's hard to pin down. But you know, when you smell something, well, you smell something. (laughs) 
You just know something's there. The other day I was taking a walk and I smelled what smelled like clean laundry. And so what did I start looking for? I started looking for one of those shoots that come out of our houses. Like, where am I walking that someone's doing laundry? When I got into my car earlier last week, or midweek last week, I smelled Whataburger. That is not the aroma of Christ. It is. It's actually, in terms of, of uh, Texas burgers, it's actually, it's probably the burger of Christ. Um, but, you know, you in and out fans, sorry. But, um, but with that said, it's not the aroma of Christ, and it's just a terrible smell in my car. I hate having food in my car. Absolutely hate it. But I could tell days afterwards that my kids chose Whataburger to eat and we went through the drive-thru and a mere 10-minute drive home left it in there for days. A man or a woman or a child who communes in the presence of God on a regular basis leaves an aroma and lingering smell for others to taste much longer. It's much more powerful. I also notice that the aroma is described as something that betrays our collective knowledge and acquaintedness with Christ. That is his point. The aroma is that we've been acquainted with, we've been around Christ, that we have somehow soaked in the knowledge of who he was. So here's how this works. When the aroma or the fragrance of Christ follows in my wake and your wake, our wake, and when we gather up for weekly worship, it's almost like a preview, as I said before. Although a dim and inadequate preview, I will admit that, to our eternal worship when all things are redeemed and made eternally new. I mean, I know it's, it, I know it's dim. I know it's inadequate. Nobody has to tell me that. I get that. But, but, but it's the closest you got. It's actually the closest you got. And just a, a snippet of what that's like is all you need to want to taste and see that the Lord is good when you really experience and see the people of God truly having been in the presence of God, truly bringing the presence of God and worshiping him in his presence in a place. It's bonkers that God even allows his presence to somehow linger on his people in such an earthly way, but he does. It's called a beautiful thing, a beautiful fragrance. Now, of course, it goes with us as we scatter, meaning the aroma or the fragrance of Christ. It definitely goes with us as we scatter out and leave this place. There's no question of that. But when you put a bunch of Jesus' followers in the same place at the same time, enlivened by the time that they've spent in God's presence that week, it is multiplied. You don't believe me? Just read the book of Revelation in the Bible. It tells you of the erupting noise and chaos almost like to us activity of heaven when we all gather up there. When time is over and we gather up there, it's going to be bonkers. His presence full on, unhindered, just palpable. And what's a little of his presence can do on this world, do not underestimate And I can't help but wonder if that is what heaven will be like as we gather up into God's uninhabited presence. Something of a preview, something of what we experience in a preview. Um, really the question, and by the way, I don't know if you have already picked up on it. Here's the real question. Is that even here? Because have we even spent time with Jesus? That's really the question, right? Maybe we've spent time thinking about Jesus. Maybe thinking about God. Maybe thinking about things of the Bible. All good things. But, but you've spent time with Jesus. Like you're a person who knows him. Who's experienced him. 
the way the Bible describes. Speaking of all this, I, I, was, I was actually having just, I wanted to meditate a little bit on this, think on this, uh, pray on this uh, this week. And I was struck by a thought while reading our community Bible reading journal this week. Uh, by the way, if you don't know what the community Bible reading journal is, our church has chosen to have the shared experience of reading the scriptures together, always in the same passage every day of every week, of every month, of every year. Um, and so we do that. Um, it's called the Community Bible Reading Journal, and it's had us in um, Daniel, and it's had us in Revelation. We just finished Revelation uh, this week. If you would like to join in with us, um, there are free little, little uh, journals out there on the resource shelf out there. You can go grab one on your way out. It uh, doesn't cost you anything. Just grab them. We just have a bunch of extras, and so go, go, go grab one of those um, if you want to join in with our, um, our reading the Bible. But back to what I'm getting at. Um, we were reading Revelation this week. We finished Revelation, and we were in Revelation 21 and 22, and a, a thought occurred to me. How foreign, and just keep in mind, 21 and 23, he's wiping away our tears. He's making all things new. He's fully present with us. He is the light. We don't need the sun. We don't need the moon. There is no darkness. There is no night. There is only day for we are in his presence fully. And, and so this is meant, and it is for John who is, writing at that point in Revelation 21 and 22, this is meant to overwhelm you with a response that we see at the end of Revelation that says, oh dear God, come Jesus, come. Like we were just like, come already. <laughs> because John, who spends time with Jesus, knows what it means to have your tears wiped by the Son of God and by no pain, a no pain policy instituted in the new heavens and new earth. He knows. He doesn't know about it. He knows it. There's a difference. How foreign heaven must be to us sound to us as we read Revelation. How foreign it must sound to us if we have not been a people acquainted with and cherishing the presence of Christ and really knowing him in this life. It will feel like a foreign country to us. Later on, we're going to be singing um, a song and one of the lines is going to be, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Basically, what he is saying, what we are saying, what we are confessing when we say that, I hope that I am so always living my life out of the presence of God that when his presence comes full and uninhibited at the second coming, that I will be like, yeah. I recognize this. I recognize only a hint of this. I've only experienced a hint of this. But yeah, this is, this is far more, but at least I've seen a kernel of what this is. That it not be foreign to me what I'm entering. For some of us, heaven oftentimes has taken the appearance of being a place we enter that is absent of God. If it is a place where God in Christ is not at the center of your vision of what it entails, then you are completely missing what the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible says in regards to heaven. Jesus is its center. He, Jesus is its focus. And the presence of his is our promised land. It's the best thing we get is to be with him. With that said, brings us back to our text today of all the metaphors found in scripture. And there's a lot. This is the one, the vine and the branches, that really produces one of the most intimate pictures of the indwelling together of a person who follows Jesus and the presence of Jesus. He says, I am the vine. Now we know 
Later in the scriptures, and even before this, he says, I'm going to send the counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, and he will teach you all things and remind you. The Holy Spirit is going to mediate the presence of Christ to us always. And so while it's technically the Holy Spirit's presence, he mediates Christ to us. And they are so one that it might as well be Christ. This is the mystery of the Trinity. And so... And so let me break down two important questions that uh, you and I need to ask that help us understand how this passage should, I pray, should press me and you to live all of life out of the presence of God. Friends, this is, this is what I asked someone to pray for earlier today. This is, this is what I desire more than anything today is to press you, to tre- press me, to press all of us to live our lives out of the presence of God. We could show up, we can gather up, we can be the church in that way, and we are the church in that way. But friends, if you come and Jesus' presence is not palpable with Jesus' people, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Our vitality that is based upon our time we spend with Christ is of utmost importance to be the church well. So here's the first question. What exactly happens when you and I spend time in the presence of God? Like what can we expect out of time and life in the presence of God? Well, the text gives a few thoughts. I don't think they're necessarily exhaustive, but I do want to share with you what it shares. The first is this. We can expect a place where our soul is tended to. Your soul is tended to. It's nurtured. It's cared for. And we can care for one another's souls. We can help in nurturing one another's souls. But ultimately, at the end of the day, here's the thing. I cannot be the ultimate final authority of nurturing and care for your soul. And neither can the person sitting next to you. Only God and Christ can be that for you. Only Christ. And through Christ... We experience a nurturing, caring Father. As co-heirs with Christ, we experience Him as our adoptive Father. Jesus is the Son of God in truth. We are sons and daughters of God by way of what Christ did for us on the cross. And so as adopted sons and daughters, we have a Father who, guess what, is a gardener. Oh, he's many other things, of course. I know that. But for our purposes today in this passage, he's a gardener, which means he nurtures you. He cares for you. He's a good father, as a good father would do. There's nothing more tender, nurturing, and blow your mind away then whatever you consider the epitome of strength and a father in today's society usually is considered the strength of a home should a father be in the home. And the heavenly father is pictured as the epitome of the will and strength of God. The one who is strong to defeat, to fight, to crush, cares and nurtures. He tends to you. Expect a strong, able, confident coach to yell at his players. But when he can take him aside and tell him gently, with his strength, withholding his strength, what he did and how he can improve, I fight for one of those coaches and I will follow one of those coaches to the death through a wall. The other, not so much. We can also expect in the presence of God a place where you're resupplied with what you need for all things. In other words, this is the place where we are empowered and enlivened for all things. It's the place where we're made alive. Made alive in a way that maybe we don't live normally. Empowered in ways where we are weak. 
He said this at several points in this passage. Just as a branch is unable, unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains of the vine. He goes on later, he says, If anyone does not remain in me, or I'm sorry, I in him produce as much fruit because you can do nothing without me. The point is clear. We are not even in a place to bring the presence of God, the fruit of God, without the power of God. Like his, his presence is power. His presence is also what we need to live. A branch has no life. It is not enlivened outside of its connection to the vine. Again, these are the things that we can expect in the presence of God. To live life out of that presence is to know you're supplied and empowered and enlivened to actually live. The John 10.10 abundant life he talks about. Not just life, but life fully. Not just life, life abundantly. There's a difference. (laughs) Difference between breathing air and actually living. And God's presence actually makes the biggest difference in that. Finally, we can expect a place where hope is born and our purpose for living is lovingly reaffirmed and reminded to us. To be in God's presence, to be in the place where we are reminded and reaffirmed that the goal for you, the end game for you, the best thing for you is that you glorify God in all you do. Like that's, that's the best thing for you. In fact, he, he says that down in verse 8, my father is glorified by this. And he goes on and says that you would produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. All of what it looks like to be in the vine is so that it would bring glory to the heavenly father. And that that is our hope, that is our goal. Now, the second question is this. What does it look like to actually remain or abide? Now, some of the Bible's uh, translations will say, remain in me. Others will say, abide in me. Uh, It's all good, but what does it mean? What does it mean to remain or abide in our true vine, Jesus? I think there are at least three things that we can identify in this text It might have several other things that we could say throughout the rest of the scriptures, but at least in this text, at least three things. One is this. What does it look like to abide or remain in God's presence? It means striving to fellowship with Christ in our difficulties and sufferings. Where'd you get that from, Rick? Did you notice this about the gardener? He lops off the branches that don't produce fruit, right? What does he do to the ones that do produce fruit? He prunes them. Now, is pruning just leave me alone to go produce fruit? Pruning is not always something that a tree or a bush likes. In fact, it puts a little bit of stress on it. But the stress actually produces something more healthy. Pruning is the equivalent of difficulties and sufferings in our lives. We have so inoculated ourselves, just culturally. I mean, this is just, this is, just, this is easy. It's like going along with the culture that we live in. We've inoculated ourselves as to the purpose goal and importance of suffering for a Christian's life. We have so elevated safety. We have so elevated health and wellness and being my best self that we just don't have categories for suffering and difficulties anymore. But read chapter 8 of Romans, which talks about what it looks like to grow spiritually according to the Spirit of God. Read Romans 8 and explain to me how half of the chapter focuses on 
going through the difficulties of life and sufferings of life and how that produces eventually endurance and a dependence upon God helping us become conquerors even through difficulties. We've forgotten. I mean, we've given ground on our suffering. Suffering was meant to produce fruit in me, fruit in you. It was meant to be a place to fellowship with Jesus. We're going to come to this passage, by the way, by the, before we get out of here today. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul actually says this. He says, I fellowship with you in your sufferings. I desire that. To fellowship with you. Fellowship with you in your sufferings. How does he do that? Through his own sufferings. He says, in my sufferings, there is something of the suffering of Christ, an echo of the suffering of Christ. And I want to be there. I want to run into that. I want to lean into my sufferings and actually see and know Christ better. Something of knowing him and him on the cross and all that transpired there is very real. And so it means striving to fellowship with Christ in our difficulties and sufferings as we are pruned. Ironically, this is how we're nurtured and cared for. Was that what you all thought of when we thought about being cared for and nurtured? At least in this text, that's what he refers to. He cares for us by pruning us. Second, it means dwelling on the truth according to the gospel as illuminated in the scriptures and, and confirmed and reaffirmed in prayer. And that is this, that in the gospel... I am clean. I don't know if this caught you off guard as we walk through this passage, but you're already clean, he says in verse 3. This is after he talks about pruning every branch to produce more fruit. He goes, and by the way, you are all clean. That feels random, right? It feels just a little out of place, but it's actually not. Oftentimes we think suffering and difficulties are not merely to fellowship with Christ, are not merely to grow and to become more like Jesus, but rather we consider them our punishment, our penance. Now that sounds noble in some cases, like, man, I'm going to take one on the chin for the kingdom of God. I'm going to go through penance, and, and I'm going to go through punishment for the sake of Christ. But in reality, that is, that is I am good by way of how bad I feel or how bad I'm going to make myself feel. That's a me-righteousness. Penance. But we need to go continually back to the truth of the gospel that we find in the scriptures, reaffirmed by the Holy Spirit to our hearts as we enter prayer with the Father on a regular basis to remind us that we are clean. We are actually clean before the Lord already by way of what Christ has done. When we remain in him, when we are living out of the presence of him, we live out of being people clean by way of what Jesus did for us. If we don't do that, we live out of all, all of our vices, all of our preferences, all of that is ugly within me. We live out of that. But he says, no, you are clean. You are clean. I rehearsed the gospel to myself. That, but what happened at the cross, the truth of what was confirmed by the resurrection of Christ tells me that I am truly, truly clean forever. I am forgiven forever. No penance for me. Do you know what it's like to smell someone who walks around living life knowing they're forgiven, knowing they're accepted, knowing they're clean? Let me give you the opposite. What is it like being around people that are always justifying because they know they're not clean? Let me make it real easy on you. What about the self-righteous guy? goes around telling you, giving you his credentials, telling you how awesome he is. I'm awesome. Let me tell you about how awesome I was. Let me tell you how many times I did a quiet time this week with the Lord. 
Let me tell you what I heard from the Lord. Let me tell you how many times I read my Bible this week. Let me tell you how many times people who toot their horn, who shout the praises of what they've done, does that smell like the aroma of anything you like? Nobody really likes a self-righteous person. Someone who knows they're clean and they did nothing to become clean on their own is a completely different animal. That knew that they were dead, a debtor, unpayable before God, and he forgave them and gave them the keys to the kingdom of God. They're not arrogant. They're not self-righteous. They are walking around on cloud nine, can't believing that they're clean and they did nothing to achieve that. That God in Christ, through his grace and mercy, gave it to them. That is a different kind of person. And when you have a collection of those different kinds of persons walking into a room, oh, the aroma of Christ is beautiful. The aroma of self-righteousness, not so much. Not so much. The last thing, the last thing we know means to remain or abide, it means producing fruit that glorifies God. If you're going to remain or abide, you're going to produce fruit. Why? Because remaining and abiding and staying connected with Christ means being where God is, working where God works, valuing what God values And you know where he is? He's there every day, every morning you wake up, ready to make you more in the likeness of him. That's where he is. And when you go the other direction and say, I'm going to make myself more in the likeness of of, of some image I've created of myself on Instagram. Or I'm going to go this direction and be in the likeness of someone I need the approval of. You're walking outside of his presence. (laughs) Oh, I know in in a cosmic sense you're not, but I mean in a reality of how you experience the Lord. He is where he is making you holy. He is also where he is working, where he is taking his spirit and sending it upon human beings so that they may trust the risen Christ. And so I can either choose to huddle up in my house, even into my church building, or I can actually share the good news of the gospel with people that God might be drawing to himself right now. I'm going where he's at. I'm going to follow where he's at. I'm going to go where he goes. And when we do that, we are fruit producers and we are in his presence. And friends, what's so incredible is the way God is so thoroughly for and with us. And we start to understand that the more we are in his presence, even if we just have never understood that, we don't get that. The more you are spending time in prayer, in the scriptures, and you don't have to be in the physical scriptures or the one on your handheld device. Just, just, just hear it and ruminate. Just think about, because they didn't always have the book. They didn't always have the device. Think about it. Just think about what you heard, what you read. And just keep rolling it over in your heart and your head and, and pray about it. What does this mean to me, for me today? How does this need to awaken me, aliven me today? Run into your sufferings expecting to see God. And go where he goes. He is so for you. In this. In conclusion, it's important to recognize that in each of um, these instances, there are kind of a, there's kind of a pattern that goes back prior in John, where he's been making I am statements for a few chapters. This one, I am the vine, is actually his seventh statement and his last statement about I am. And so he's trying to communicate something of who he is. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. He's giving it in just colorful, bright, vivid language for you to know him. Let me, let me just share some of what, what, he's, what he says. I am the bread of life. 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the vine, the true vine. Remain in me. God is glorified by this. It's all important, of course. They all give different pictures, but I want to focus in on just two things. And if you have been resistant to the Lord, if you've been resistant to God, if you've been resistant to one who would spend time, rhythmic, everyday, regular, live my life out of time in God's presence, I want to entice you. I want to entice you to turn about today. Not just so that we can all gather and we can all collectively know that we bring in with us the presence of God in the thickest way possible and we can pat ourselves on the back. Not for that. I mean, that's going to be important to be the church. But I want to entice you by way of who Jesus is. Some of us don't go to Jesus because he's a picture or vision in our mind that we honestly don't want to go to. And we don't remain in him because we honestly start to think and believe things about him that are actually not true of him. Notice the first I am statement says, come to me which is exactly, exactly what we're going to be um, reading here in just a moment from another passage. Come to me. And the last one is remain in me. These end caps of the I am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel account remind me of two scripture passages I want to close with and read over all of us today. The first one is from Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, where Jesus makes a stunning and revealing self-disclosure about himself, about his very heart, and why his invitation, I hope today for any of you, will be incredibly enticing. It's this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Two things. Come to me. What do you think the qualification is to come to Jesus every day regularly? Have your act together? Having conquered this, and then I can finally go back to God again? That's not how I read it. The only qualification is not you being good enough, not you deserving it. The only qualification he gives is, are you weary? Are you burdened? Do you feel weary? Do you feel burdened? It is the meek who shall inherit the earth, the weary, the burdened. Those who know they have nothing without Christ. <laughs> that know that they are bankrupt without God's spirit dwelling in them and making them new. Are you weary? Did you have a bad day yesterday? Are you burdened? Do you have too many responsibilities that you just can't seem to shoulder? Are you weary? Did you not get enough sleep last night? Or the night before? Or the night before? Or the night before? Or the night before? Do you just not sleep well in general? 
Are you weary? Because this sermon is so boring. (laughs) Guess what? You are not hurting my feelings. And if you're weary because my sermon is boring, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus that wants us to come to him. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. Those are not the characteristics most people think of when they think about coming to the Lord. He's lowly and humble in heart. His heart for you is amazing despite the fact that he is strong and able and is the king of kings. The king of kings. The conqueror of conquerors. The men of men is also lowly and humble to serve you today. Come to him. It's like my father with strong arms wrapping me up when I'm at my weakest. How good that feels. Take up my yoke, learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to him today, tomorrow, the next day, the next week. Let us bring the aroma and presence of Christ in this place every week. And last scripture, Philippians. This gives you something of a goal and a prayer to set for yourself. The Apostle Paul gives us a good example here in his desires that we can pray. I want what Paul's saying his desire is. I want that to be my desire. It may not be your desire today, but I want it to be. I want to have a desire like this. This is his desire. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Do you know what just came before he said that? He just listed off his credentials and basically his most awesome religious guy of the year award. He just showed you how much, if we're going to stack up against man's stacking up, according to man's religious index, I'm I'm pretty good. I dare you to find better. And he just said, but here's the deal. I pretty much can throw it all in the trash. What could be gained to me in a flesh way, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. Well, that's an aroma, right? His best righteousness, his Christian of the Year Award righteousness, he considers to be trash heap dung so that I can get something better, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, in him, which is repeated over and over in the New Testament as really the Greek language equivalent of what it means to be a branch on a vine. In him, not having a righteousness I'm bringing of my own from the law, because I would never be worthy, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal, again, this is make Paul's goal your goal. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. And we mentioned this earlier, the fellowship to be had in his sufferings, being conformed to his death, not because that's an end, but because assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. There's a resurrection on the other side of this death. And so I wonder, what would it be like for you and me to be so acquainted and desire such an acquainted status with Christ that we are not merely able to tell you what Christ has done? A lot of people can tell you that, but share who he is. When you hear 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. There's a lot to be had there. There's a lot that tells us the gospel facts of the gospel message. And we should never leave those things behind. But we may be a generation of people that really need to show that the thing that stands out to them above all other things in that passage is God loved. God loved me. So loved the world. He loved me. He loved you. And I really understand that experientially. I don't feel like a person who just knows about God. I know God and his love because I have remained in him. I've abided in him. And his love as a result has just abided in me. How he feels about us as he died for us, how he loves us in our sinfulness as he died for us matters. And by the way, if you didn't know how he felt, here's how he felt. Forgive them for they know not what they do. The worst you have. And don't get much worse than killing Jesus himself, the son of God. And that deserved from his mouth. Forgive them for they know not what they do. If you don't know Christ's heart for you, you likely don't know Christ in the way that a branch is intimate with a vine. And so as we sing together in these few moments, there's one other song we're going to be singing besides the one I referenced earlier where we're going to be able to confess a line. We get to confess the line, I believe in the saints' communion, which is a part of the creed, the Apostles' Creed. And when we sing that, we're not just singing the saints' communion with one another. We do mean that because the next line is about the Holy Church. But it also implies the Holy Communion we all share together and as individuals with Jesus. We commune with him and we come in, commune with one another and with him and the aroma of Christ shows up. With that said, let's pray.